Welcome. We're glad you're here this morning. If you're here with some family to hear some of the little ones sing this morning, and this is uh, maybe a one-time installment for you or one of a periodic installment, we're glad that you're here for whatever reason. We count it a privilege to share the next few minutes with you. I'm thankful for the way that we spent the last minute or two, three minutes maybe, singing that particular song because I find myself getting really... um, anxious about this time of year, feeling like I'm rushed to do everything, and Christy and I made a, um, we thought we'd buy a few Christmas gifts this weekend, and we we were going to stop in Bath and Body Works and realize that I would need, like, lots of the products that they have in there immediately afterwards if we're going to try this. Like, I'm going to have to take a hot bath. I probably need counseling and something. I'm going to need something, so we passed on it, but I could feel the anxiety this time of year. And I even feel it on a Sunday morning when I gather because I feel like we've been inundated with performances, starting with the Thanksgiving Day parades with performance after performance after performance. But this is not a performance. This is worship. This is where God's people gather. We're not trying to be efficient. We're not trying to be polished. We're not performing for one another. We're enjoying a God that's worth enjoying. So I'm reminding myself of that as much as I'm coaching you to be intentional about how we spend these next few minutes. Let's worship in these next few minutes. Let's encounter God through his word. I'm going to pray toward that end. I'm also going to pray for another church in our community, for Lone Oak Baptist Church. I've not had the chance to pray for them before, but Christy and I met the daughter-in-law of the pastor this this last week, and uh, she told me his name, his last name, and I don't remember it, but I found his first name and his wife's first name on Facebook. So we're going to pray for Robert and Mona and for Lone Oak Baptist Church. Some of you may know them, so you can, you can, you can plug their last name in as we pray together. God, I first of all want to be, um, we want to lift up another church in our community. We are thankful for the opportunity to gather with other churches, uh, even in separate buildings, but to gather around the same time frame every Saturday. Lord, I'm thankful that we have a number of churches in our community. I'm thankful that we are saturated with opportunities that people can have to gather with the people. Lord, I this morning want to pray specifically, surgically, for Lone Oak Baptist Church and for Robert and Mona. Uh, understand that he has been there for uh, some time, has been pastoring the church there in Lone Oak for some time. And Lord, I pray that you would sustain him in that work. I pray that you would fuel him with worship. I pray that that would be what drives his ministry, first of all, to Mona, and secondly, to his family, and third, to a church family. Lord, we pray that you would use Lone Oak Baptist Church to be salty and bright and aromatic in Lone Oak. Lord, we pray that the people that are gathering there each week would be equipped for worship, would be um, awestruck by your glory and your greatness would be scandalized by the crazy good news that we have in Christ, that you would save the likes of us. God, I pray that that would make for people that are truly enjoying you out loud in Lone Oak and in Hunt County or wherever they might work during the week or live. Thankful for the opportunity to lift this fellow church up this morning. Lord, I pray for them as I pray for us this morning that we will spend these next few minutes worshiping Guard me from the anxiety of feeling like I need to perform or be polished or um, 
funny or any of the silly human frailties that I can drag into this pulpit, Lord. I pray that you would guard me from that, that you would use um, the study that you've um, given me this week, the time that we've spent together, that we would enjoy you together through your word. Pray that the Holy Spirit would equip your people to not be anxious this time of year, to find and enjoy a good dose of reality, ultimate reality, while everything buzzes around us, that we can stop down and enjoy you and what you've given us in Christ. Lord, we give this time to you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. We're in Isaiah 9 this morning. You can turn to Isaiah 9. I'm going to read the first seven verses of Isaiah 9. It's one oracle. If you've spent some time with us in Isaiah, you know that that Isaiah presents these oracles, these uh, sort of prophetic announcements. And Isaiah 9 verses 1 through 7 is together an oracle. It's going to be where we spend our next three weeks. Verses 1 through 7 of Isaiah 9. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You've multiplied the nation. You've increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden, the staff for his shoulder, and the rod of his oppressor, you've broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For unto us... A child is born. To us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it. With justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. I wasn't deathly afraid of the dark when I was a kid, but I admit that I was afraid enough. That space underneath my bed, that foot and a half space of no man's land was probably the most concerning for me. When I was a kid, I did a long jump into my bed to avoid that scary space. I think darkness is um, definitely scary for sure. By the time I got married, I realized I probably should stop doing that. Christy made her nervous. Really, I did eventually grow out of that. But man, I'm telling you, something about the dark for me. And I don't know that I've completely outgrown it. A couple years ago, Christy and I, well, it was a year ago, December, Christy and I had the chance to go to New Zealand for an anniversary trip. And part of that trip involved a tour through a cave. This cave had luminescent glowworms on the ceiling. And um, they took us to the section of the cave where those glowworms were, and they turned all the lights out. We had little lights, little lamps on our helmets, and they turned those lights out. And I remember that if they had gone maybe another 10, 15 seconds with those lights off, I was going to get out of that cave somehow. I don't know how, 
But the darkness really, really scared me even that day. I think I know what it must be like to experience, as the scriptures describe in Exodus, a darkness that could be felt, that ninth plague. I'm not sure what it is about the darkness. For me, I feel confined. I feel immediately when the lights go out, like in that cave, I feel like I am frozen and confined. I don't know if it's the inability to see which way to evacuate if you need to get out of the area. You don't know which way to go. I don't know if that may be it. If it might be a fear of not knowing what's there that could come after you and not being able to defend yourself. I'm not sure what it is for me and what it might be for others, but one thing is for sure, the darkness is scary. I don't know that they can make a horror movie at high noon. Take some darkness and take some music and you've got recipe for a great horror movie. The darkness has a reputation in God's word also. It is traditionally a place or a situation where God isn't moving or isn't working yet. Do you think about creation week? It begins in the first pages of our Bible. Creation week begins with a context of darkness. It says darkness was over the face of the deep in Genesis 1.1 or in Genesis 1, the first chapter there. And it's in that context that God speaks the very first words in the Bible and sets the tone for the rest of the book. Let there be light. It's a pattern in our Bibles where God shows up in dark settings and he speaks and he acts and he brings insight and he brings light. Genesis chapter 15, God speaks into Abraham's darkness, this deep darkness that's in Abraham's night and God speaks into that darkness and gives him many promises, wonderful promises that we're walking in right now, that we are the product and fulfillment of those promises spoken into darkness. In Exodus 10, I mentioned just now the ninth plague was a darkness that was so profound it could be felt. And it's that ninth plague that was the context for the final plague, the Passover, that also took place at midnight, the darkness of midnight. Judgment comes to Egypt and deliverance comes to Israel. Time after time, God does something profound in the context of darkness. Just a few chapters later in Exodus 14, it's out of darkness that God parts the Red Sea and delivers his people across the watery ordeal, through the watery ordeal. It's just how God moves. He has a pattern of speaking into dark situations and bringing light and insight. David said in 2 Samuel 22, he said, For you are a lamp, O my Lord, and my God lightens my darkness. It's just what God does. On the contrary, I'll share a passage with you from Deuteronomy chapter 28. I have a few places for you to turn this morning, and I'll share with you what those are. Deuteronomy is not one of those places unless you would just like to. Some other places that you can have ready this morning would be Matthew 4. Put a uh, bookmark in there, Romans 8, and finally, John 9. Deuteronomy chapter 28 is a picture of what happens when God's people disobey him. 
just as much as God shows up in dark settings and speaks and brings light and brings insight, when people walk in periods of godlessness, they experience a darkness that comes back. Listen to some excerpts from Deuteronomy chapter 28. It's a chapter full of blessings and curses. Listen to these curses beginning in verse 15. If you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God or be careful to do all His commandments and His statutes that I command you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. Cursed shall you be in the city and cursed shall you be in the field. Cursed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Cursed shall be the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground, the increase of your herds and the young of your flock. Cursed shall you be when you come in, and cursed shall you be when you go out. Disobedience brings profound darkness. Listen further. The Lord will send on you curses, confusion, and frustration in all you undertake to do until you are destroyed and perish quickly on account of the evil of your deeds because you have forsaken me. God is not a chump. When he's treated in a way that's godless, when you move in a way that's godless, you reinvite darkness. Listen further. The Lord will cause you to be defeated if you are disobedient to me. Before your enemies, you shall go out one way against them and flee seven ways before them. And you shall be a horror to all the kingdoms of the earth, and your dead body shall be food for all the birds of the air and for the beasts of the earth, and there shall be no one to frighten them away. The Lord will strike you with the boils of Egypt. This is pretty encouraging, isn't it? Everybody really feeling good right now? He will strike you with the boils of Egypt and with tumors and with scabs and itch of which you cannot be healed. Really encouraging. It gets better. The Lord will strike you with madness and, listen, blindness and confusion of mind. And you shall grope at noonday as the blind grope in darkness. And you shall not prosper in your ways. You shall be only oppressed and robbed continually, and there shall be no one to help you. Disobedience reinvites, and godlessness reinvites the darkness. In the last two chapters of Isaiah, if you've made that journey with us over the last eight weeks, we've looked in chapters 7 and 8, and what we've realized over these last two chapters is it has gotten very, very, very dark. In fact, chapter 8 ended with this passage. They will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. These last two chapters have been, frankly, a difficult installment in the darkness of particularly Judah. See, Judah has invited this darkness. They were confronted with a real threat from Israel to the north and from Syria, and they brokered a deal with the Assyrians to come to their defense and to protect them. And it was a godless and faithless deal. And they brought on themselves the promises of Deuteronomy chapter 28. That's what's coming for Judah. Profound, deep darkness. Israel, meanwhile, is going to experience the same thing, and they're going to experience it first. Israel, you remember, is to the north. They were in cahoots with Syria to invade their own brothers to the south. Think about that for a minute. The kingdom to the north is going to invade their own brothers to the south, Judah. It's like a 
people-sized version, a mass-sized version of Cain and Abel right there that's been unfolding these last couple of chapters. So Judah and Israel are, are about to experience some terribly dark and difficult times. The Assyrian invasion will defeat Israel to the north. They will take Samaria in 722 B.C. And then a couple thousand, hundred, excuse me, hundred thousand Assyrians will eventually surround Jerusalem and lay siege to Jerusalem in 701 B.C. Some terribly dark times unfolding. But then there's chapter 9 of Isaiah. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. This passage begins with a sweet and welcome word. It's the word but. It is such a great word. It's a word that takes me over to Ephesians chapter 2. My two favorite words in the Bible, but God. It tells us there's a change of direction here. It was very dark. It had gotten profoundly dark by the end of chapter 8. But then there's that beautiful word, but, because God is going to act in that situation. Now, the tenses are really difficult in this oracle. Let me help you with the tenses if I can. First of all, let me take you to the words former time and then the words latter time. It sounds like these things are going to happen in the future. And, he, and, then, and yet he describes these things as if they've already happened. Let me help you, let me help you place this time-wise. The former time here is speaking of something that's going to happen in the future. And the latter time is speaking of something who's going to happen that's going to happen even further in the future. Isaiah is looking ahead in this oracle. These events have not happened yet for Judah for Israel, or for Isaiah. But yet he is enjoying the reality of them as if they've already happened. If he wasn't driven by faith, you would think the guy's delusional. He's talking about things as if they've already happened and they haven't even happened yet. He is speaking of something that's to happen in the future and he is so certain about it that it's as if it's already happened. Now, in order to place these events and make sense of what in the wide world of sports he's talking about, we're going to look at these two things, the former time and the latter time, and the clues that we have in there. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. Now, the land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali were areas of Israel that were cordoned off. You remember when Joshua moved into the promised land with the nation of Israel? And they defeated, or they, they didn't defeat everybody, they defeated most of the ites in the land, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hittites, all those ites. And then they settled into different regions. The land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali were just to the west of the Sea of Galilee. That's a particular land that he's talking about here that's going to experience the contempt of God. That means the humbling work of God. God is going to bring a humbling work on the lands of Zebulun and Naphtali just to the west of Galilee. And that's going to begin in 735 B.C. when the Assyrians invade Israel to the north. I mean, on the money, that's exactly and precisely where they go. 2 Kings chapter 15 gives the details. 
that that's the land that is first invaded by the Assyrians. It's the land where when the Assyrians invaded, they resettled it. They deported all the Israelites there, or most of them, and then settled it with a bunch of Assyrians. The lands of Naphtali and Zebulun became three Assyrian provinces just to the west of the Sea of Galilee. Now what I want you to see here is this is the land, this land to the west of the Sea of Galilee, the lands of Naphtali and Zebulun, is ground zero for judgment as a whole. It is the first place that the lights go out. It is the first place that the Assyrians invade. It is where judgment begins for all of Israel. Isaiah is looking to the north at these two lands. And he's saying that's where the lights are about to go out. And sure enough, in 735 B.C., that's what happened. The Assyrian army invades, deports, and moves in a bunch of Assyrians, and it becomes Assyrian provinces. That's what Isaiah is talking about as if it's already happened. It hasn't happened yet. And then he talks of the latter time. In the latter time, there in the, in the second half of this verse, but in the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. Now this land, this land that, had, that, hit, that was the first to experience the darkness, that was the first to experience the curse, will be the land that's the first to experience the light, where God shines his light there first, the land beyond the Jordan in Galilee. It is wonderfully fitting, and it sounds like, God, that the place that first experiences judgment and first experiences the darkness of judgment will be the very first place that experiences the light and hope that only he can bring. I look back at verse 2 of Isaiah chapter 9. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shined. We're only looking at verses 1 and 2 today, and this is the second verse here. Let's just consider this and unpack this for a moment. The good news of chapter 9, verse 1, that has to deal with the land and the light that's going to shine on the land, now moves from land to people in verse 2. The people who navigated this dark season, this people will see and experience a great light. The same God who ordained the darkness in those latter days, in the former days, will shine the light in the latter days, and he's going to shine it in Galilee. There's a beautiful little, little theme that's developing here, a creation theme. The same God that said, let there be light and spoke in the darkness, is going to bring light into the darkness of the land of Galilee to the west of the Sea of Galilee. The same God that spoke into the darkness of creation now is recreating in some ways with the light that he's going to bring to this land. Now, I really believe that many and most of the prophetic promises in our Old Testament have some version of fulfillment in their times. If you were paying attention a few weeks ago, we considered just even the word Emmanuel, that there was a, a son, a metaphorical, a figurative son that was born, that was named Emmanuel, that there was a fulfillment there. We tend to want to make a beeline to Christ, and we miss out on some things that take place in their times. That really, if you find those clues of things that actually are fulfillments, are minor early versions of the fulfillments in their times, they become a shadow of the substance that is Christ. 
and they help you appreciate Christ more. Now, I'm looking for shadowy fulfillment here. I'm looking for something that happened that fulfilled Isaiah's prophecy, and I can't find it before something that happened 700 years later. I can't find it in this case. This is one of those occasions where I'm looking for some fulfillment of this prophecy in their time, and I can't find it. Now, there are some clues there that eventually the Assyrian army, this army that invades Israel, that eventually in 701 B.C. surrounds Jerusalem by 612 doesn't even exist. Okay, that's kind of cool, but that's not fulfilling the prophecy that Isaiah has presented here in this oracle. That's a great thing, but it's not bringing the light that he promises. And the light is turned on 700 years later. Turn to Matthew chapter 4. I do want you to see this passage. Matthew chapter 4. Where we are in the story of Matthew, obviously Jesus has been born by this point. He's grown up to the age of 30 or so. Uh, John the Baptist has been doing his work to prepare the way. You can look in the headings in your Bible right there. In chapter 3, Jesus is baptized. He goes into the wilderness in chapter 4. And then in chapter 4, verse 12 is where we pick up. Now when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew to Galilee. It's the same area, the same place that we're talking about this morning that Isaiah prophesied about. Okay, the land of Naphtali and the land of Zebulun. The first place it got dark. Okay, the first place the Assyrians invaded. Okay? He withdrew into, the, into Galilee and leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. That's not coincidence. That's not coincidence. And let's look further. So that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way by the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and the shadow of death, on them light has dawned. From that time Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Here's the beautiful thing I want you to see. The fulfillment of this oracle, 700 years later, earlier, is fulfilled in the beginning ministry of Christ. It's where it began. He's baptized. He goes in the wilderness. And where does his ministry start? In the land of Zebulun and Naphtali, where the lights went out. Now they're coming on. Because the light of the world has shown up. And he's teaching. And he's preaching. And he's healing and he's moving. And what was shared with these people 700 years earlier is coming to fulfillment. Now, on purpose, we're only spending just looking at those first couple of verses because I want to spend the rest of our time looking at a few application points. What does this prophecy from an oracle 700 years before Christ really have to do with us? How does it impact us? How can it impact us? I have three things for us to consider. The first thing is really brief. The second thing is a little bit more developed. And the third thing is where we're going to spend the remaining, uh, remainder of our time this morning. First of all, the first thing, God is sovereign over all things. If you've been around Crosspoint for a period of time, this has been built into you. If you haven't, if you're visiting this morning or you've been 
you're a, a visitor that's visited a few times, maybe this is your first installment to hear this. The same God who glorifies and brings salvation is also the God who humbles and brings contempt on the land. The very same God that turns the light on in the land of Galilee is also the same God that turned the light off 700 years earlier as the, light, as the darkness of judgment came into that land. Daniel chapter 2.21 says, He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. Job 1.21 says, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. God is not capricious in how he goes about this thing. He's not nebulous in the way he applies the darkness or the light, but instead he is working something that likely, and this is a key point for the morning, likely is transpiring over more than your individual or their individual lifetimes. I'm going to say that again because this is really going to connect to point two. God is likely unfolding a plan. A plan is actually transpiring that is going to be fulfilled over more than individual lifetimes. It's going to take longer than an individual lifetime. I'm going to develop this more in the second point, but let me, let me just, just give you this little tidbit. If you've got no room for a God who humbles and only have room for a God who glorifies, then you are worshiping a malnourished God, a measly God, a weak God. I don't even know that you're worshiping our God because our God is both love and holy and just. And you see both of those things transpiring in the same land as he brings the darkness of judgment to Zebulun and Naphtali. He also brings the light and salvation to the very same land in the person and work of Jesus Christ 700 years later. God can do that because he's God. Secondly, faithfulness plays out over hundreds and in some cases even thousands of years. The promise that was made to these people in Isaiah's time, in this oracle, the promise that was made to them wasn't fulfilled for 700 years. Hear that number, 700 years. If you're like me, you like promises that are fulfilled in about 700 seconds. 700 minutes, maybe. I think I might be able to hold on for 700 minutes. 700 days, now, ooh, that's a stretch. But 700 years, the promise that he made to these people who were going to go through some terrible suffering as they see their land taken from them, as they are taken from the land, as they're taken into exile, either into Assyria or into Babylon, the promise for them is something that is going to be fulfilled 700 years later, and that's what God, through Isaiah, says, now that'll sustain you. Hold on to that. This thing that's not going to be fulfilled for 700 years. You realize in that 700 years that many of those people who heard that promise through Isaiah lived... And then died. Okay? And then their kids were born. Not then, but their kids were born. They overlapped that life and death. And then their kids and their kids and generations came and went during that period. And the, and the, and the promise still hadn't been fulfilled. I want you to think about this for a minute. I want to encourage you this morning that if you don't think, you likely don't because you're, you're Western. And I don't mean cowboy Western. I mean American. You likely think as an individual and you likely think like I do in terms of 700 seconds. I want what I want right now. I'm going to get on Amazon and I'm going to get what I want tomorrow. 
<laughs> right? <laughs> we don't think this way. We don't think like this people were being called to think. What I want to encourage you to do and consider in these next few minutes is the thought of being supra-generational. Okay, super. I didn't use the word supergenerational because that would mean greater than a generation. Supra-generational means rising above your generation to pan out and look around a little bit. Okay? As a bunch of individuals who are thinking in the immediate, we tend to think about our little piece of the forest and the trees that are right in front of us and the things that we have to deal with and the things that we're bumping into. What this calls us to do is to rise above the trees, the treetops, and to look outside of your little twinkle of an eye lifespan and think about what faithfulness means for your family, for your children, for your children's children. And the part that you play in that of holding on to a promise that may not be fulfilled in your lifetime. Man, the encouragement here is to think supra-generationally. I think what really helps with thinking supergenerationally is, is realizing that these promises were made not to individual persons, but to a people. Okay, we tend to read our Bible like a bunch of individuals. We need to learn to read our Bible like we're part of a people. And the promises that have been made to a people are easier to hold on to as a people. Because you realize, ah, this promise is going to likely take longer than my lifespan to be fulfilled. So as a people, we're going to walk in these promises. As a people, we're going to hold on to them and adhere to these things. Flying above the treetops and thinking supra-generationally will change the way you deal with these everyday problems, these trees and these tree trunks and these things we bump into right in front of us that we have to navigate and deal with. They will change and give you a different perspective you'll realize that God may not fix your immediate problem because he may be working and is likely working out something that's going to take place over longer than your lifetime. That's going to change the way you deal with today's problems. He may not fix that immediate problem for you because he may be working a bigger, longer-term plan for his glory. Think about that for a minute. He may be at a slower pace than you are in your 700 seconds. And how you move and how you wait in that problem may be part of the way that he's actually glorified in it. It may be the way that he has planned for your faith to be displayed and modeled for the next generation. And as we wait maybe 700 seconds and we sort of squeeze out our Ishmael's, you know the story with Abraham and Sarah. They're promised, you're going to have a son. The two of you, you two are going to have a son. And his name's going to be Isaac. And they're like tired of waiting. So they say, hey, why don't you take Hagar and see if we can go ahead and fulfill God's plan on our term in 700 seconds. So as we go about squeezing out our Ishmaels, we're not equipping tomorrow's generation and tomorrow's church to go the distance waiting on some Isaacs. This promise was made to people that didn't come to fulfillment for 700 years. Man, I want you all to see this. God's promises are best adhered to and clung to as a people who have the maturity to fly above the treetops with a perspective outside of them with faithfulness that outlives them. Here's a good test for you if you're wondering if you're doing that. Consider this question. 
Do any of God's promises that his son is going to return influence the way you think or move now in any way? Think about this. The promise that was made to the remnant 700 years before Christ in this oracle to hold on to this hope, this light is going to come to this land that's going to experience extreme darkness was going to influence them to hold on to Christ as things got dark. That promise would have to change the way they spoke, the way they thought, the way they moved, the way they considered their circumstances. Everything was going to have to be different in light of that promise. If you're wondering if you're moving in a way that these people likely would have had to move, ask yourself that question. Does the promise of Christ's return influence your decisions in any way? Do they influence the way you spend your money? Do they influence the way you spend your time? Do they influence the way you spend your effort in excellence? Does the promise that Christ is coming back influence you in Anyway, if it doesn't, ask God to give you a supra-generational perspective on faith so that you can come up above the tree line and realize that tomorrow's church depends on how you move today, this Christmas. Tomorrow's church depends on how you move today. Man. The third thing from this passage that I want to encourage that you'd see and enjoy is there's wonderful good news in this passage. In Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 and 2, if you've turned there, if you, or if you've turned over to Matthew chapter 4, go back and look at those two passages again because I want you to see something. In Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 and 2, there's wonderful good news in this passage. First of all, in verses 1 and 2, consider just what's there. Verse 1, God is going to redeem a land that's been cursed. And in verse 2, he's going to turn the light on for a people that have experienced extreme darkness. God is going to redeem a land that has been cursed in verse 1. And God is going to turn the light on for a people who have experienced darkness. What I want you to see, first of all, in the good news is that part of the good news for us is that creation is going to be redeemed as well. It's not just about people. All creation has been cursed and is going to experience God's deliverance as well. Romans chapter 8 verse 20 says, For creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. His name was Adam. In hope that the creation itself would be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Something that will help you in your view of salvation is that first of all you move super generationally and think outside of your lifespan. But also outside of your own life and realize that all creation is anxiously awaiting Christ's return. Just like the land of Zebulun and Naphtali was going to be redeemed, this cursed earth that we're living on is going to be redeemed. That'll change how you view a sunrise or a sunset. You can look to a sunset and say, hang in there, sunset. He's coming back. You can sit by the seashore and watch these waves that crash in and 
Psalm 19 says that, that the heavens declare the glory of God day to day pours forth speech and you can hear these crashing waves and you can talk to those waves and say, hang in there waves, he's coming back to redeem you too. Man, that'll be healthy for your view of salvation to realize it's not just about you and it's not even just about mankind. It's about all creation being redeemed with his people. But let's look specifically at the people. Let's consider the people for a moment. We have to enjoy, especially being people, the good news for the people. In verse 2, the people, let's consider what it says in verse 2 again. Look at it. If you've already turned the page or if you're not still on it, look at it specifically. In verse 2, it says, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shined. Consider what he promises in this verse 2, that the people who walked in darkness will see great light. Those people, the people that walked in darkness, the people that dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shined. You mean the people who didn't listen to God and were unfaithful will see a great light? Yes, that's what I mean. The people that walked in deep darkness, those people who rightfully dwelled in the land of deep darkness... A darkness that they brought on themselves? You mean those people? Yes, on them, it says, light has shined. The good news of the gospel for us, for salvation, is knowing that God's plans won't be thwarted even by the sin and rebellion of man. God will still save his people. What a great God we have. Man, that should be good news if there are any sinners and rebels in here. Any? Ultimately, the darkness of chapter 7 and 8 is a picture of man's plight with sin and misery in this life. But God. But God doesn't leave them in it. He doesn't leave us in it. God shows up. God speaks. God acts. And he brings light and insight. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6. Just jot that passage down and just listen to this beautiful picture. God doing what he does. The theme that was introduced in Genesis chapter 1 right off the bat. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That's what God does. He shows up, he speaks, he acts, and he doesn't leave us in our darkness. Man, what a beautiful promise. What great news. That is scandalous good news. Because they deserved the darkness they were walking in. But God didn't leave them in it. But here's something that's important. I started the morning out talking about being afraid of the dark and talking about how welcome the light is in that setting. You know, for me, I'm thinking, turn this light on so I can figure out how to get out of this cave ASAP. Turn this light on so I can see what's under that dark space underneath my bed and make sure the boogeyman is not under there. Turn this light on in my house when the electricity goes off so I can go about my business. That's usually the way I treat light. But that's not what God has given us in Christ. He hasn't turned the light of salvation on for you so that you could see Christ just so that you could go about your business. That's not the way salvation works. 
Man, think about this passage I just read to you, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6. I'm going to read it again now with emphasis on a couple of words. For the God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts so that we could go about our business. So we could go on with our life and our own plans and our aims and our, our desires, whatever we want to do, Jesus is just there to get the light on for us. That's not what it says. The God that said, let light shine out of darkness, shown in our hearts, to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Here's where I want to spend these last few minutes this morning. And this is where I feel like is the cream of this sermon. The carrot is Christ. The good news is not Jesus coming into your life so that you can go about life being blessed and have everything go your way. Think about where the promise was placed for these people. It's spoken as if it's already happened, but what's coming is some deep darkness for Judah and for Israel. They're about to experience some terrible suffering at the hands of Assyria. And the promise that's made to them is the person and work of Jesus Christ. Think about where it landed 700 years later. When Jesus showed up in Galilee, everything didn't all of a sudden go their way. They were under the heavy hand of Rome at that point. They found themselves under the heavy hand of another empire. They went from the Assyrians to the Romans. And yet the good news is the light came on and the news itself, the carrot itself, is Jesus. Not everything's going to go your way so you can go about your business, Israel. The carrot is Jesus himself. Man, this is the thing I want y'all to think about this time of year, right now. I feel like this is the treat of the morning. This is the, the marrow and meat of the morning. Is that Jesus is himself the blessing. He's not your savior so that you can go about experiencing all these other blessings. He is himself the carrot. I'm going to take you to a story as we prepare for the supper. Turn to John chapter 9. I want you to see this beautifully illustrated in John chapter 9. Jesus is himself the good news. This may be be a new thought for you, and I really want you to contemplate this. Contemplate on this. I want you to think on this. Jesus is himself the good news. In John chapter 8, you don't need to turn there. Hopefully you're in John chapter 9 ready for me because I want to show you something that unfolds in John chapter 8. In John chapter 8, verse 12, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Jesus is connecting the dots that I'm the light that turned on in Galilee. I'm the light that was prophesied through Isaiah 700 years ago. That's me. That's what he's saying in chapter 8. I'm that light that this land needed, that this people needed. Okay, look what happens in chapter 9. Just the next scene. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. Let's import some of the imagery that we've considered this morning. Deuteronomy chapter 8, you remember the consequences of disobedience and godlessness? Groping at noonday. Blindness and darkness. But God shows up. 
passed by, he saw men, blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus answered, it was not this man that sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it's day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. All right, this man's darkness. And what Jesus just said in chapter 8 and what he's saying right now is all connected to what Isaiah promised 700 years earlier to this people and to this land. There's a light that's coming. It's going to shine in Galilee, and this is him, and this is what he does. Watch what he does in this chapter. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. And then if, we, if this story was like we often think about salvation, it would then say, and then he went on about his business. Jesus healed him and then he went on about his business. He worked on that new promotion over there at L3. He got that new car. He got that house he'd been dreaming about building. Man, there's nothing wrong with those things. But you know that that's, that can be the sum and total of how we move and what we're about. What we think about. What moves us. Turn the light on just so I can go about my business. It's not what it says. Watch what unfolds for this guy in the rest of this chapter. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, It is he. And others says, No, but he is like this. He is like him. <laughs> He's just like him, but different. I don't know. He's something. He kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, then how were your eyes open? And he answered, the man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, where is he? And he said, I do not know. So they brought to the Pharisees the man who had been formerly blind. Things are not going well for this guy. Realize that. To be brought to the Pharisees is not like a treat. Okay. We like to think that Jesus in our life means that we can go about our business and the wind's going to be to our back and there's going to be fair winds and following seas and everything's going to be great. Things got worse for this guy. <laughs> think about that. Following Jesus meant, now, granted, he can see, but he's certainly not going about his business. And things are, the wind's certainly not to his back as he's dragged before the Pharisees. Now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, He put mud on my eyes, and I washed, and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, How can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. So they said again to the blind man, What do you say about him since he has opened your eyes? He said, He's a prophet? I mean, this guy doesn't know what's up with Jesus just yet. He thinks he's pretty awesome, as you're going to see this unfold in the next few minutes. But at this point, he doesn't yet know who he is. His eyes have been opened, okay, but he hasn't seen who Christ is yet. 
Verse 18, excuse me, yeah, 18. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and they asked them, Is this your son who you say was born blind? How does he then now, or how does he now see? His parents answered, We know that this is our son and that he was born blind, but how he now sees, we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. For his parents said these things because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be the Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. See, things aren't going well for him. To be put out of the synagogue, to be brought before the Pharisees, to be in some ways disowned by his own parents. The wind's certainly not to his back. He's not going about his life with things just going great. Therefore, his parents said, he is of age, ask him. They're fearing the Jews more than they're loving their own son. Look what unfolds, though, in this next section. So for the second time, they called the man. This guy has a great sense of humor. who had been blind, and they said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered, Whether he's a sinner, I do not know. I know one thing, that though I was blind, now I see. They said to him, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I've told you already, and you would not listen? Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? <laughs> I love this guy, man. He's great. You know what? Already, though, he's seeing that when Jesus opens his eyes, it doesn't mean he's going on with his own life. It means he's now become a disciple. I'm a follower of this prophet or whatever he is. He doesn't even know at this point. But I'm a follower of him, whatever he is. And they reviled him, saying, You are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. The man answered, Why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. And they answered him, you were born in utter sin, and would you teach us? And they cast him out. Things are not going well for this man. But God acts, and God moves. And Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and having found him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? And Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. The carrot for this man born blind was not getting his sight. The carrot for this man born blind was seeing and beholding his Savior. Man, mid-month this Christmas, mid-month in December 2016, that's what I hope for and pray for in you. And me too. Is that we see in Christ that He is the good news Himself. He is Himself the carrot. He is what sustained a people for 700 years to hold fast to a promise. Daniel, Meshach, Shadrach, Abednego, those kind of people. He's worth holding on to. He's the good news that was promised to them, not the wind of their back. Not fair winds and following seas. But the good news himself 
The carrot himself is Jesus. Let me pray. God, I pray that... um, I pray that we as a people can behold Christ this morning, that we can enjoy what we have in Christ, that we can see that Christ is himself the good news, that he is himself the answer to our rebellion, to our sin, to the darkness that we've experienced, all of us have experienced in some way, in some version. Lord, I pray that we can enjoy that Christ is the singular answer. God, I pray that you would show us, each of us, individually and collectively, ways that we may be looking to Christ to turn the light on for us so that we can go about our business. Lord, I pray instead that you will pry our eyes off of our plans and our business and our goals and our dreams and fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. God, I pray that we can enjoy him right now in this Advent season, in this hectic month, that we can exhale, slow down, fix our eyes on a Savior worth enjoying. God, we're thankful. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Let's distribute the elements.